Podcast One. Global skincare brand Alabashay was founded in 1936 in Paris by Madame Bachet, who by all accounts was a force to be reckoned with. 84 years down the track, it's a third generation family business run by Pippa Hallis. Another force to be reckoned with. And today, Pippa shares how she's continuing to grow this iconic brand. Coming to you with a flawless complexion, it's episode 531 of the 11-year-old award-winning Small Business Big Marketing Podcast. Yeah, I say, welcome to a small business marketing show, where successful small business owners share their souls. To take your marketing straight to the lead, now here's your host, Mr. Timbo-Reed. And welcome back to your weekly dose of marketing moisturizer. I'm your host, Timbo-Reed, you infinitely more importantly are a motivated business owner and you are well and truly ready, I hope, to crank out some great marketing to build that beautiful business of yours into the empire that it absolutely deserves to be. And that's exactly why this podcast exists. But but if that's not enough, then grab a copy of my popular marketing book, The Boomerang Effect, that shows how being helpful in your marketing returns you more customers and more money. Kaching. You can grab a copy over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com. Big episode today. Pippa Hallis, owner of the iconic skincare empire, Ella Bache, shares how she's managing and growing a third-generation family business that started in Paris, the city of Louvre, in 1936. This week's Monster Prize Draw winner picked up an idea from a recent episode, <laughs> how's this, that made their business more honest. Does that mean it was a dishonest business before they started listening to this podcast? I I don't know. We will find out later. Plus, I have got a little surprise for you in the next episode, which I'll tell you more about later in the show. As per usual, team, there's marketing G-O-L-D dripping from the ceiling over here at Small Business Big Marketing's HQ. So let's get stuck right in. Before we go and meet Pippa Hellis of Alabashay fame, I have two quick favours to ask of you. Is that okay? Just a couple of really simple ones. Number one, if you haven't already, I would love you to subscribe to this podcast. Why? Because you'll be the first to know when a new episode drops, which makes you kind of the cool kid on the block. And it really helps me with my ratings. Producer Dave was explaining to me the other day the algorithm for how podcasts rank and having Lots and lots of subscribers is a good thing. So I'm going with what Dave says. And all you have to do is hit the subscribe button in whatever podcast app you are using. Favour number two, once you've done it, call the Small Business Big Marketing Hotline, 0480-015-150, and leave me a message saying something like, hey, Timbo, it's Blah Blah here from Blah Blah Incorporated, and I just subscribed to your podcast because I freaking love it. That would be really good. And then I just play it on air. And if I get enough, we'll just make a whole episode of people saying I freaking love it. Producer Dave's looking at me going, you're joking, Archie. You are joking. That is the most boring bit of, you know, podcasting ever. Anyway, they're the two favours I ask. If you were to do one of them, it'd be subscribe. Thank you. Okay. 
Let's meet Pippa Hellas, the third generation owner of the iconic skincare brand Alabashe, which sells 320 SKUs, that's stock keeping units for those not in the know, across 120 branded franchise clinics nationally. Plus, they have 34 skincare clinics inside David Jones department stores. For those overseas, that's a very big department store throughout Australia. Now, Pippa employs over 120 staff. Her franchise network employs thousands of skincare therapists nationally, plus hundreds more go through the Alabashe College every year, which we will talk about in this interview. Now, Pippa generously shares what it's like to head up a third-generation family business, a conversation we haven't had on this podcast that much, i.e. family business you know, management. We talk about what she uncovered when she appeared on the TV hit reality show Undercover Boss. She shares her worst razor blade moment, her words, not mine, and her greatest champagne moment, her words again, plus her views around making bold moves and unexpected decisions. She has a wonderful mindset, Pippa, when it comes to running a business. Now, Pippa's great aunt, Madame Bachet, founded the business in Paris way back in 1936. So, I started off by asking Pippa what influence Madame Bachet has had on the way she currently runs the Alabashet Empire. It's a really good question and it's a question I've been thinking a lot about, particularly in 2020 because of the obvious reasons. She's someone who started a business in the most disruptive time in history. So obviously World War II, she lost um, a lot of her friends and networks and she actually was Czechoslovakian and studied chemistry at university there and moved to Paris after she graduated. So she was someone who didn't have the benefits of technology that we do, but she heavily believed in using her networks and creating her networks to build a business and a brand You know, while she was a very tenacious person, she didn't suffer fools easily. She was very kind but tough and she was, I guess, a a female that broke a lot of glass ceilings and, you know, way back way back when. As the third generation now CEO of the Alabashe business empire, let's call it an empire, it sounds much more impressive. (laughs) Um, were, Were you ever sat down? Uh, and had your, because your dad took over from her, mm-hmm. did, did anyone ever sit you down and, and sort of say, now this is how it is, this is where we came from and this is how it's going to be? No, and I have, um, I was raised in a family that never sat me down and said, this is what you've got to do, this is how you're going to do it. I was just brought up with it around me and it was just part of my family, part of the dinner conversations part of, um, you know, what I did on school holidays, packing a lot of boxes and, you know, all the things family business people do. So never, ever was forced. I was I was always probably taught by osmosis. I don't think it was by design. I think it just happened naturally. You're just living, you're living it. Just living it. So your dad took over from great aunt Madame Bachet. I love saying that. It conjures up such a visual in my mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was a scientist. So imagine a white lab coat yeah, right. and this amazing long hair in a bun all the time. She wasn't the glamorous, you know, I mean, she was beautiful, but she was she was a scientist. So Yeah, yeah. tough. She was on a yeah. mission. She was on a mission. Did you ever get to understand why she started the business? Did she have a skin problem? Did she was she into fashion? What what was what was that about? She was passionate about 
creating formulas with the highest quality ingredients. She'd get really inspired by things like, for example, walking through the markets and watching, you know, the poorer market uh, peasants, she used to call them, putting tomatoes on their on their skin and she'd go back to the lab to try and unpack what that that was. And so for those on, you know, listening um, who know skincare really well, that then turned into fruit, acids and extracts. So she was an inventor. Love it. So what I learned there is it's okay, like I should go home and do maybe a, a Heinz tomato ketchup uh, facial or... <laughs> <laughs> Not quite no, that easy. No, no. Okay. Lots of uh, lots of compounds and scientific things that get you got her to an end result of treating right. healthy skin. <laughs> yes. So Ella Bachet uh, comes to Australia in the 1950s. Your father is running the business. Did he come over from France or was he? No, he was he was born here. He's a boomer. He's a post war oh, yeah. baby boomer. And my father is completely the opposite. So he's very creative. Uh-huh. And he's the entrepreneur. So he he essentially became a brand manager and builder before brand management was even a term. Yeah, right. And he's like he's one of these people. Um, you know, he's a lifelong learner, but he's not a he's not a university uh, person by any means. So he's yeah, not an academic. That's it. Sorry, that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> not an academic. So I'd have. Lo- I mean, I went to uni, and you know, I think. Dad and I have lots of debates still over, you know, which is the better way to start a business and learn in life. Yeah. <laughs> how, old, how old's Dad now? Uh, mid-70s. Oh, that's beautiful. So he Not he, in the business at all. Okay. But, so because Ella Bache, I mean, this is a globe, we have a global audience here, but certainly in Australia, Ella Bache is a, is a, is a great brand name in the, in the skincare category. Do we put it down to, what's Dad's name? John. Do we put it down to John? Is he, is he the- Or Nodge. Mike. Kids call him Nodge, which is John backwards. Oh, I love it. So that just gives you, yeah, that just gives you an idea of what sort of person he is. Is he the brains behind getting the brand to a point in time where it was, it was, you know, it was a, a, a almost iconic Australian brand? A hundred percent. And I think there was some deliberate choices he made in certainly in the eighties and early nineties that put the brand on the map and. It was probably, he's very intuitive and he backs himself and, you know, worked extremely hard back then. But, you know, many Australians who would be listening to this, who, you know, were watching mainstream media back then would remember the 18-foot skiffs and the Elabache brand name on the on the skiff. And that, skiff, skiff being a yacht. A yacht. And the brilliance, thank you. The brilliance behind that was the skiffs were broadcast during the cricket so it was a really, you know, combine someone's passion of sailing with a great billboard on Sydney Harbour with free broadcast media and that, you know, was an amazing boost for the brand. But how did that work? I mean, sailing and cricket, may, oh, I'm going to get myself into trouble here. Just say it, Tim, <laughs> yeah, say it, Tim, totally. don't be scared. You know what I'm going to say? Male-dominated <laughs> sports. Yes, yes. Why but- would a female brand plaster itself over them? Yes. Well, we did other things at the same time, such as, you know, back in the day, there was only Iron Men events. So, you know, my father was very passionate. I mean, growing up, you know, under the under the watch of someone like Ella, he always had really strong female role models. And, you know, he invented the Iron Women. So Ella Bache. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Your, so there was, your dad, Nodge, invented Iron, Iron Women. Yeah. So Nodge. Stop it. Nodge worked with the Iron Men 
or surf lifesaving at the time and basically said, hey, this isn't right. There should be women doing this. So, huh. um, yeah, so that's, it was a very Australian, you know, lifestyle brand and I think that yes. that played through the heritage of the brand. It plays through, you know, the brand today and and how the brand became built by doing things that probably weren't the norm in the category, surprising people and, and being a bit irreverent, I guess. Mm, not a word I would... would to, sta- to stand okay. out. It's not, it's, it doesn't seem like an irreverent brand. In fact, I, I, earlier I did, I, I said, you know, Alabache is an iconic Australian brand. I actually didn't realise it was Australian until uh, I was introduced to you and I, and I was quite surprised. Um, is it good that it, it just seems very international to me, Alabache? Do you want people to think, to know that it is an Australian brand or would you prefer them to think it actually French? Yeah, I know. It's a really interesting question. I think every advertising agency I've worked with in, you know, my time as CEO has asked that question and I and I reflect on it and, and think, I don't think it matters. I think we've got this beautiful European heritage with an Australian lifestyle moment now and I think we pull on both. We've got fabulous ranges that are developed and, you know, built out of Australian human needs such as, for example, sunscreen that doesn't sting your eyes when you go surfing or beautiful Byron Bay facial oil that so I don't think it really matters. France has I think it would matter if it was made in different country that didn't have the cachet and premium quality ingredients that that Australia isn't renowned for and same with same with Paris. Pippa uh Nodge decides enough's enough, whenever that may be. You are working in advertising agency land. You and I have very similar backgrounds, having grown up in big advertising agencies. Was it always a plan for you at some point to take the business over and be the third generation stalwart? Is that what you call yourself? Um, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> terrible phrase, stalwart, isn't it? It's like... It is. It, I don't think any, anyone's ever called me that. <laughs> I'll take that as an honour then. Um, yeah, how, yeah, yeah. How did, you, how did you come about to be running the business? Yeah, so look, Nodge burnt out or retired when he was about 50 and he, you know, decided to go painting and surfing in Byron. Smart move. So we had a non-family member uh, CEO for for many, many years and I was working obviously in advertising and absolutely loved it and super grateful for my time there. But I turned 30 and, you know, back in the days that was pretty old for someone working in advertising. It was. And, you know, in all seriousness, there, there just wasn't any fem- many female role models in agency land that I really aspired to at that time. And I thought to myself, I've got to either go back overseas or um, jump ship and try working it in the family business. And, you know, my, my passion and my heart was always there because it's, you know, Blood is is thicker than water, and it was a great brand. It wasn't, you know, something I wasn't passionate about, like nails or tires or you know something like that. So, was was Nodge giving you a nudge? Was there any pressure? No, there wasn't actually. If I reminisce, because I've you know got my own kids, and I think Nodge did something really really clever, or or just fluked it. I'm not sure. I have to ask him this. <laughs> But he just he just educated us and I, I always knew what was going on in the business, but it was never, ever with any expectation or force. 
I think there was a plan there. Knowing knowing Nodge as I do, he doesn't do anything by chance. He's he's like, I'll, you're probably I'll right. I'll get her by hook or by crook, and he got you. That's it. And 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 also, one thing I've learned from Nodge is delegation. <laughs> he's good he's at delegating. Very good is he? at it. <laughs> you do this. You do that. I yeah. do nothing. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I surf and paint and live in Byron Bay. I mean, Nodge is a smart, smart gentleman, and I like him. I'm going to knock this on his door it. when I'm exactly. next down there. What do you find yourself focusing on as CEO? Good question. So, look, it took me a long time to work out what a CEO actually does. And, you know, I remember when I, I first stepped up into that role and kind of sat there with a blank piece of paper going, what am I supposed to be doing? So, look, I think it's different for every business, but for our business, the drivers of the business are certainly around the brand and innovation, product innovation. You know, we're very much an education business. We we run an ad- undergraduate school. So, education and also education to the consumer about so they can learn more things about their skin is important. And also, you know, business models in general. So, that's how I spend my time as well as, you know, managing a lot of people, whether it's our franchisees or staff or therapists. Um, it's such an all-encompassing position, isn't it? Isn't it? What, what do you find particularly hard? Now we'll see how transparent you are because some of your staff are probably going to listen to this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know what? On, I, be honest. No, I probably find the most rewarding thing and the most challenging thing is managing and working with people because we all bring our own... We bring our own life to, you know, work and the more I learn, particularly going through a hard year, which 2020's been, for a lot of people, the more I realise that, you know, mindset is such a, a an important thing. And, you know, mindset, I don't know whether it's nurture or nature, but mindset is such an important thing and you can influence people, but you can't control people. And I think it's just giving... You know, my role is to give people every the best opportunity they can to succeed and try and play to their strengths. How do you do that? How do you give people the best opportunity to succeed? Is that giving them enough rope to hang themselves? Is it giving them great advice or education? What does that look like? I think, um, you know, and again, you learn this through experience, is you set people up with with a really clear framework of, you know, what they're what their objectives are, and then and then you give them the freedom, and you you act as their coach, and you're there to pass on as much information. I feel, you know, now I'm a bit older to to regift that information to people that I've had the fortune to acquire in my life. But you know, they've got to lean in and do it all themselves. Yeah, I loved uh, chatting to you earlier in the week in the lead up to this interview. You talked about. Razor blade moments and champagne moments. Yes, yes. <laughs> so good things that happen in the business and bad things. Can you give us an example of a razor blade moment? Yes, I can. And it's a very, I mean, I've had so many and so many even in, you know, you've got razor blade and champagne all in the space of an hour, right? Running a business, it's just, that's just what, what, what happens. So, you know, for me, I think I'll never, ever forget the moment on the 26th of this, mar- of this year, of March this year, sorry, when uh, Scott Morrison announced on the television that all skincare salons or beauty had to close down across Australia. So I think the blood ran out of my face. It was 11pm at night and, you know, you feel an enormous, you know, I still get goosebumps, enormous amount of responsibility for, you know, we've got thousands of people that's livelihoods rely on 
essentially I felt like me at that time. So you you kind of go, wow, you, your leadership's you have to step up and, and try and make the best choices you can in a particularly challenging situation because you don't know what to, what's going to happen. No one knew. Well, you can't prepare yourself because you didn't see it coming, but how do you steel yourself so that you can step up and be the person who is going to be looked to for confidence, security, a reassurance? How do you do that? There's two things that have really helped me. One is continually learning, particularly, you know, in that example I gave you, I've been, you know, I quite often read uh, Harvard Business Review publications and different case studies in there. And I had been reading about what um, a department store in China had done in Wuhan to try and see if there was some, you know, levers we could pull from what they had done. And, and that's exactly what we did. So I could see this coming 10 days before it happened and I could see from just purely educating myself that all high-touch, face-to-face businesses were going to be shut down. So the only channel we had as an option to drive revenue, to connect with customers and to keep the business going essentially was was digital and tech. So we had to pivot, overused word, but it's a great word, and <laughs> and we had to do it quickly. So that's exactly what we did. And so as the, the franchisees or stores close their doors, we open virtual stores. I mean, we didn't have the time to f- perfect it or test it, but at least it g- gave everyone a digital platform to try and earn some money. Uh, what do you mean by that? Is it like, so you've got an e-commerce store on your site. You don't mean that. You've introduced mobile therapists to go to people's homes. Is that what you mean by a virtual store or virtual offering? No. So, I mean, we've got 150 franchisees across Australia, all small business owners. And, you know, they're, they're everywhere from Darwin to Alice Springs to Westfield Shopping Centres. So what, what I fundamentally believed was the important thing for them was to learn through this time, was to connect to their customers and and possibly have every chance of earning some revenue. So we created, I guess, a mini e-com store for each of them and also an ability to do a virtual skin consultation. You could hook into me either through social channels, that's how you'd find out about the offer. Uh, You'd click on Facebook or Instagram and then you'd get taken through to you know, Elabache Bondi's uh, virtual salon. And then you would see Elabache Bondi therapists that you had been used to seeing in their store. So that relationship and that connection, I believed was really important to to retain that business and um, so everyone could open again. And also they, they could sell online. Yes. Pippa, you appeared on Undercover CEO, the reality TV series where they follow the CEO of a big business. Uh, they, they disguise you and you go into all aspects of the business. Uh, what did you learn from that experience? I learned something really nice. I learned that there was an enormous amount of passion in the brand. And yeah, look, processes could have been tweaked in you know different ways, shapes, or form, but that the heart was there and the and the passion was there, and I think that was a really really fantastic reminder for me when I finished that. Any interesting surprises? Talking about a family business, so the the crew at the time were really um, really wanting me to go into our manufacturing facility. We produce and manufacture a lot of products in Sydney here, and you know I was like, 
You don't understand. These people have known me since I was five years old. It's going to waste your day. It's going to waste your time. But if you really want me to do it, I'll do it. And they're like, yeah, yeah, I really want this to be part of the story. So I was like, okay. I had my brown hair, my coat on, and I walked in and one of the ladies who's divine says to me, Pippa, what have you done to your hair? And I, Oh, that's funny. <laughs> I know. Busted. Busted. So look. Yeah, it's a human – business is about relationships, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, of the hundreds and hundreds of business owners that I speak to, um, when you ask them, you know, what's the greatest threat and the greatest opportunity in their business, they say people. And, you know, mm. managing those people is all about great relationships. So clearly you're onto that. You operate in an industry. What, what, how are you defining your industry? It's not the cosmetic industry, is it? What, what's your – or is it? Oh, you you could you could call it that. We call it skincare. Skincare, okay. Yeah. Incredibly competitive. Back in the day, probably when you took over, there were big brands like Clinique and you know all those other ones that I don't really know because I'm a bloke and what would I know? But I, I, I sense it's just become increasingly more competitive as as the years go on. How do you remain relevant, and how do you remain that brand of choice when the choice has just become so extensive? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I think for all of us who who own businesses, I feel, again, grateful I've got a marketing background because I understand this. It's ingrained in me. You've got to have a point of difference and you've got to be able to differentiate yourself from your customers and really have a value proposition that customers love and are relevant to today. So, you know, I think running a business, there's probably three things. There's your vision, your um, strategy, and then your execution. And so your your vision has to be so um, relevant and, and, you know, people fall in love with you. So I think that's our, our challenge. And, you know, we've got two um, very different customer bases and I try and get to know the customers, you know, as well as I possibly can to make good decisions. But, you know, they're, they're the over 40 customers and they're the under 40 and, and very different behaviour from both customer segments. How do you get to know them? Um, I try and get out there as much as I can. You know, I try and stand in store and... Meet the people, kiss yeah, the babies. all that kind of stuff, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, I try and, you know, we work really closely with our franchisees and, you know, whether it's on new products or gaps or what customers are saying um, and, and try and do quant and qual surveys once a year. What What would you say is Alabasho's point of difference? Because, you know, and... Uh, Every business owner knows that they must have a point of difference, but we live in a world of parity where there are so many, you know, brands in every category. Yes. Finding a point of difference, one could argue is hard. I actually think it's not as hard as we think, but you know, what is yours? I think ours is, I mean, definitely because we're a service-based business as well is a strong point of difference. I think if it were just a product business, it would be, you know, really, really hard goes back to the founders' beliefs and principles, which is around no two skins are alike. And, you know, this belief that, you know, individuals should feel confident in their own skin. So I think if we did a lot of work when Kim Kardashian and social media and all that stuff exploded, because all of a sudden, particularly in Australia, the explosion of what I call the fast food of beauty happened. And it was the normalisation of you know, Botox and fillers and all those things that, you know, a lot of particularly under 35s, they wanted to look like someone else. They didn't want to look like a better version of, 
you know, they didn't want to look like them. And that really personally, you know, kind of upset me. And I'm I'm not putting any of these Botox or fillers down, but I, what, what concerned me was people wanting to look like everyone else. So, you know, I think that runs really deeply in our organisation and how we talk to customers and et cetera, et cetera. It's making sure that people have healthy skin, but they have the healthiest version of them. It's said, and you hear it occasionally, that the skincare industry sells hope. What's your view on that? I, look, I think it does, but I think we, again, goes back to Ella. She was a scientist. She wasn't someone who just um, was selling a dream and hope. We wouldn't sell or formulate products that didn't work, and we don't promise miracles. So it depends on what you're looking for. But, you know, aspiration does drive does drive a lot of industries and I think as long as the product works and you say what you do, I think you can have fun with the brand and the aspirational side of things. I think one of the things that you do very well and you said it earlier is that you you educate. You, you are well beyond selling hope and you do educate both your franchisees but more importantly your customers on what great skincare regime is and how to go about it. How's that come about and, and what does it look like? I mean, on the website there's lots of information the other content that you share, it's, it plays into what I call helpful marketing, which is that idea of making helping your prospects make a more informed purchase decision. Yeah, and I think it's a category, like a lot of categories, possibly um, financial products, etc., where people make a lot of mistakes and it's trial and error and there's not a lot of information out there that you can, you can learn more about your skin. So, I mean, education has always been at the premise of our fundamental premise of our our brand and I think you know part of our point of difference is that we only have therapists working in our business who have learnt learnt about the skin we don't have salespeople so it comes back to you know first and foremost it's a it's a diagnosis and then it's a it's a solution you know your skin is different to mine different to every, everyone else's and it's about diagnosing what your skin needs and then creating a a product solution that's going to work for you and you will get the results. Pricing in your category looks yes. incredibly interesting because you can, you know, on um, let's talk moisturiser. You know, you can go to a chemist, you can buy a moisturiser for three, four, five bucks. You can go to some fancy clinic, boutique and buy a moisturiser for 300, 400 bucks. How does pricing work in your industry? Does a higher price mean a better product? Look, probably not always like all industries, but I do think there is a, it goes back to highest quality ingredients in a product. It's like food. You want it to be the best ingredients and you don't want to use horrible, cheap ingredients. It's just not good for your skin. It's not good for your health, etc. But then probably more than me, it's about positioning in the minds of your customers and I remember learning about the the four P's. It's probably totally different in in, <laughs> in my yeah the old four the old P's. four P's. I remember, it's probably yeah. I don't know what they teach in um, in undergraduate marketing degrees now. But positioning is about price. It's about product. It's about all those things that that we learn. Product price, place promotion, and I would argue there's a fifth P, which is people. Nice. I love that. Yes, awesome. Yes. I never quite understood why that was that one was left <laughs> yeah, out when I, I was doing marketing at exactly. uni. Exactly. Where's the people? Isn't that the first P? Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Don't you need a customer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What marketing works best for you? So you've actually got two streams. You're trying to attract franchisees, of which you have 150 nationally. I'm interested to know what you do to attract them. 
but more importantly, as a consumer product uh, brand, what marketing works best? You know, I don't think you're on TV or radio or any of those. Do you do outdoor? Do you do magazines? What's, what really works for you to create awareness and sales? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And look, the whole marketing landscape has changed so much. Oh, yeah. It is just so, so, so different. So tell me, uh, just tell me what you mean. I know what you mean by that, but can you spell it out to, to listeners and what does that mean to you? Yeah, of course. So, gosh, when I worked in advertising, we... Back in the day. Back in the day, we we would have tr- the traditional, you know, media options and that would be TV, radio, print, magazines, etc. outdoor. But still, we were, we were very much taught to, you know, have a good single-minded proposition behind all your communications and it had to come off a very clear consumer insight. So I don't think the strategic side of things has changed. No, that hasn't changed. I, I think you absolutely need to know your customers, what problems you're trying to solve for them and make sure they're really, they're really um, authentic problems. The media landscape has changed and... I think, gosh, probably five five years or more, we just flipped our marketing model. And yes, we do in-store, um, bricks and mortar and high touch is so important to our business. But, you know, in terms of our marketing model, we just went, you know what? We just need to create a digitally-led marketing model. So we we got out of print TV, et cetera, et cetera, and we just doubled down on on digital. And I think... You absolutely still need a compelling, creative ad that people engage people at. You know, I always look at the funnel. I think that's still relevant today. At the top of the funnel where you're driving awareness and getting, you know, eyeballs or clicks. And then as you go down the funnel, you know, it becomes more about sales conversions and ultimately product purchase. So, I, I mean, I love digital marketing because it gives you, there's that old question, you know, 50% of your marketing works. Um, the challenge is to know yeah, which 50%. Yeah, and I think digital marketing allows you to, to get closer to that answer. A product like yours, a brand like yours, sort of you expect to see it, and maybe you are, a full page ad in the first few pages of, say, Vogue, right? Which I'm guessing these days, I have no idea, but I'm guessing it costs 10 grand, 20 grand. I don't know, something, a, a lot of dough. You're shaking your head going, we're not there. Is that right? Well, it's really it's really interesting. Let me ask you this: How many Vogue magazines do you think they print every month now? Uh, in, a, in, in Australia, Australia? Um, I'm going to say I, don't, I have no idea, but I'm going to say forty thousand. I know, right? Eight thousand copies. Oh, stop it! Yeah, I know. So, if you're talking about you know making the best choices to reach your audience. Um, a lot of those traditional media, and, and you know, I love Vogue. I love the aspiration of you know a lot of these these magazines, but it just doesn't do the job that you need it to do anymore. So we use it. We what? What about just on that? So I'm thinking, okay, but you have a strategic partnership with David Jones Department Stores. Whilst there's only eight thousand people who are buying Vogue magazine in Australia. Uh, the quality of those people, like the main buyer at David Jones, wouldn't it be good? I'm not, I'm not putting forward a case, by the way, to be have a full page in Vogue, <laughs> but it's it's kind of where you expect a brand like yours to be. Don't you want them to see the Alabashay full page ad in Vogue and then your job is done? Is it that easy these days? No, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm sort of being facetious and like yeah. I'm, I'm not putting forward an argument because I know the opportunity cost. Let's say it is 10 grand for a full page ad. The opportunity cost of that 
in today's marketing landscape is huge. I mean, how many Facebook ads does that buy? How many, you know, did how much content could you create with 10 grand these days? It's, it's I think that's the, you're absolutely right. It's the choice now. And, you know, I think if you run a premium brand like Alabasha, you have to do the aspirational piece. And I, I, I strongly believe in that. You know, we, we lean on PR very heavily. So, you know, you probably open and hopefully you'll open a, a Vogue magazine. You'll see product placement and editorial. And then, and, and we probably use that. We'll use that a lot, a lot more than we do, you know, an old ad that's, that looks like print media in our days. But, um, and then we use social. And I think, I think one of the things that, that I had to do that I did a couple of years ago, um, someone encouraged me with this idea that the notion of influence has completely changed. So, you know, people are buying on that they, they're influenced by humans and they connect with humans as more so than big brands these days. So that's when I went out and went, uh, although I, I love being a CEO in the background, part of my role to drive the business needs to be to tell the story. And I think it's as a brand and a business owner, you need to tell your unique story because no one can copy that. No, no. There's, there's a great saying around brand, Pippa, which is um, people can copy what we do, but not who we are. And I think mm. more, more business yeah, owners that's need- that's a great one. Yeah. Well, just more business owners need, need to focus on that because yeah, everything we do is, is very easily replicated, but the way we go about doing it, the personality we inject into it, the tone at which we do it sets us apart. And um, I think there's a lot of comfort to be taken in that. And the stories we have, the, the stories story. we have in the brands. No yeah. one's got a great Madame Bachet, you know, like you're the only one with that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> no one's got a nodge. No one's got a nodge, exactly. <laughs> so nodge probably would have done marketing or did marketing very differently to, to how I did it because of the notion of influence has changed and humans need to step out from behind the brands and connect with their customers on social channels, on blogs, on editorial, all these things that people people now are marketed to by their phones, as we know. Yeah. And even, you know, I have a lot of, I get, I get listeners email me saying, you know, can we have more product marketers and, and, and CEOs on the show? Because service, for services, service marketing, it's a little bit easier. The business owner steps out and says, you know, it's me. Um, but the idea of stepping out from behind a product brand is different. Now, you don't do that in the public forum. You don't go, hey, I'm Pippa Hellas and I'm, you know, the boss of Alabache. But you do get out there and, and meet the people and talk to your customers and so important, you know, otherwise you lose touch. It's so important. I mean, one of the things I have done is I've, I've written a book and I've also turned, what I learned is I've turned that book into a into a um, blog series. So Love it. And that's part of my marketing job as a CEO. So for me, it was around, you know, the brand represents um, bold women and men. And so for me, I wanted to interview lots and lots of bold women out there doing some really awesome stuff. So yeah, that's what I, I spend probably an hour or two hours a week doing that. Is that the premise of your book, interviewing bold women? Uh, yeah, so that my book was called Bold Moves. And the Fantastic. reason it was called Bold Moves was not because I think I make bold moves, but because, you know, Ella was bold. I told the Ella story, the human story behind the brand. And then I interviewed a lot of females who I've met, you know, certainly in my role that I think are amazing and, and bold and, you know, such as um, Lorna Jane and L- Lane Beachley and all these these fabulous women who share their 
their knowledge. Biggest takeaway from going through that process, both personally and maybe just to help you run the business? I think going into that process, you know, I, I kind of thought, oh, no one's going to want to give their time or, you know, impart their knowledge onto me. And, you know, I hope I'm not, I hope I'm not just being annoying. But when I reached out to these women, they were just so, they, their, their generosity of spirit was awesome. And I think, you know, for all business owners, you know, you realise you're not alone in, in all these things you experience such as self, you know, very, being very self-conscious and self-doubt yeah. and imposter syndrome and, you know, people not believing in your vision and your ideas and you start to, you know, question yourself and all, all these things are really, really normal. And I think I walked away feeling very grateful that, that people out there are willing to give so much and also that you're not alone. Mm. Totally agree. Great advice too, because too many business owners think they are alone and too many business owners are scared to reach out and kind of show vulnerability and, and all that nonsense. And, and they should, you know, it's, we're all human at the end of the day. You know, I was actually petrified interviewing the CEO of Alabashe, but hey, you turned out to be, <laughs> you know, half decent. Stop it. <laughs> Pippa, awesome. I, I, it looked genu- genuinely was. I was so excited when our mutual uh, friend Anthony Bell um, said he knew you and could get me an intro because it is a brand that, you know, I don't spend my waking hours thinking about Alabashe, but I do get excited when I think about brands that have such high awareness and such cachet and, and, and Alabashe it does have cachet. Hey, there you go. I'm a poet. I didn't know it. <laughs> so thank you for joining awesome. us. Awesome. Thank you on the so podcast. much. Awesome. Thanks so much, Tim. Bye bye. There you go, team. Ella Bache owner Pippa Hallis. I reckon she would be a super duper boss. Here's my top three attention grabbers from that chat with Pippa. Attention grabber number one. I was reminded again just how important mindset is when building a business of any size, and in particular, your marketing mindset. Now, you're listening to this podcast, so I'm guessing you either want to love marketing or you do love marketing. Embrace marketing, have a mindset of positivity around it, of opportunity around it, and it will do you good. Attention grabber number two. I love Pippa's willingness and keenness to step out from behind the brand which gives her clear insights into her precious customers. We've spoken about this a lot on the show. If you're the boss, if you're the founder, I hope you're getting out, meeting your customers, keeping your finger on the pulse like Pippa is. Attention grabber number three, I love the fact that Pippa's continually learning. Again, my senior person in the business, you know, Some might think, oh, she knows it all. She doesn't need to keep learning. She doesn't know it all and she does keep learning and I find that really inspiring. That's what caught my attention. I would love to know what grabbed yours. Call the Small Business Big Marketing Hotline, 0480 015 150. Put it in your phone under Timbo and let me know. Come on down. It's Timbo's Monster Prize Draw. Yes, indeedly, doodly. It's time to reward another motivated listener who listens to this podcast, but more importantly, implements ideas that they've picked up from the show. And today's winner is rural estate agent Michael Gleeson of 1.8 Real Estate in Tranmere, South Australia. And Michael says, Timbo, your podcast has become an important part of my weekly ritual. I am a dream maker. Love that, aka real estate agent. 
that's cool, who is in an extremely tough market with, how's this, 30 to 40 new agents each week getting licensed and trying to break into my farm area. That just seems a lot. Like, like over the course of a month, let's take the 30 per week, that's over 120 new agents in your area. It just seems bizarre. Anyway, I'll believe you, Michael. He goes on to say, I especially took inspiration from Mark Livings. He's the owner of the non-alcoholic spirit Liars, who not only took a product into a flooded marketplace, but created a whole new market and customer base here. That was an awesome interview. He's one of the great marketers, is Mark Livings. Michael goes on to say, my business is built on performance with a no sale, no fee promise. I feel that putting skin in the game with real estate has made my business more honest and we work far harder than our competitors. Keep up the good work, Timbo. Regards, Michael Gleeson, 1.8 real estate. I wonder why it's called 1.8 real estate. We will never know. Michael, thank you for listening and thank you for emailing me. As a result, you have won a full range of Liars Non-Alcoholic Spirits. It's valued over 500 bucks. Vouchers to use uh, with Sendal and Tradies Workwear. Promotion on this show and a backlink in the show notes. Everyone else, I would love to hear how your marketing's going. If you've picked up an idea from this show, implemented in your business, email me and let me know what impact it's had. Keep it short, like Michael did, and you might win. Email me, tim at timreid, reid.com.au, or call me on 0480 <laughs> Hey, Timbo, this is Oris Quadrito from Bayside Limousines, Cars and Buses. Mate, I stumbled upon your uh, fantastic podcast probably about six or seven months ago, enjoying it thoroughly. So doing a lot of the back episodes just to get up to speed. But being in the limousine business like your latest podcast that you've got with uh, Stage Kings, we're basically in the events business and, you know, tourism business and corporate driving around speakers for a lot of the speaking houses around the country. But we were wiped out as of the 21st of March, uh, like a lot of my colleagues in the, uh, in the limousine game. Maybe I decided that it was time to do something else or try to do something else. So I relaunched a business that I had about 30 years ago, mate. Business called Hot Dogs of the World. So we went out, uh, sourced a uh, food trailer, decked it out with all the original logos and just modernised them with the help of my marketing kids with their, you know, graphics and all that sort of stuff. So we've now been running for about three months and it's the most exhilarating idea that I came up with. I mean, I'm in my I'm in my sixties really and. Uh, just loving doing the business again. Uh, who knows where we'll go from here, but again, love listening to your podcast. Uh, keep up the great work, and thanks very much for listening to me. Have a, have a great time. Take care. Bye. Oris, that, my friend, is incredibly inspiring. You're in your early 60s. I'm sorry to hear that your limo business has taken a hit, but, yeah, many businesses have taken a hit over COVID. The fact that you have gone... And opened up an old business idea that you used to do, hot dogs of the world. <laughs> I love it already. The fact that you think it is exhilarating says to me that you are onto something. I don't think you're going to work another day in your life, brother, given that you found a business that is exhilarating. So, mate, I wish you all the luck. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Um, I hope it's adding value to your business life. And, uh, mate, all the best with hot dogs of the world. 
got a little bonus for you in the next episode. I've gone out to the members of the Small Business Big Marketing Tribe on Facebook. You're a member, right? Aren't you? If you're not, join. And asked one simple question. How can we, as consumers, not business owners, help small businesses get more customers? And I've got to say... The 30 plus ideas that I will share with you in next week's episode are absolutely awesome. If you find yourself loving marketing more and more, then grab a copy of my book, The Boomerang Effect, over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com, which explains why and how you need to be creating more helpful marketing in your business. If you've got something to tell me, leave a message over on the Small Business Big Marketing hotline. I promise I won't answer. It's not my personal phone number. It's a hotline. So leave a message on 0480-015-150. If you're loving the Small Business Big Marketing podcast, you'll find another 530 more episodes on the Podcast One Australia app. And as has been the case for the past 11 years, this podcast is presented by me, Timbo Reid, and nailed together by the industrious team over at Podcast One Australia. Until next time, thank you so much for tuning in. May your marketing be the best marketing. Bye for now.